tonight, once again, we're going to try to wrap this thing up about last week where I've been kind of like disturbing you and destroying that some views that you have on God's will. You can see where we've been in the roadmap. We've covered God's sovereign will, his moral will. We introduced the traditional view of God's will, meaning that you can discover it. We started critiquing it for the last two weeks. It's been a little disturbing for some, and that's good. It's stretched us. Remember, I'm not trying to sell you one of you. I'm just trying to tell you and introduce to you some alternatives that you may have not have thought of. After we're done with tonight, we're going to do next week. Next week is focused entirely on doing and how we can translate from just being hearers to doers and spending our week on that. Then we're going to go through all those massive list of questions that you've sent to us. The 75 or so questions, we're going to run through them really fast and answer them all. And then end with one night on just praying for God's will. And what does it mean to do that in light of everything we've just learned? Is that even possible to do? All right. What I want you to do is look at the definition at the top of the screen for a moment. Because I think we're starting to have some debate last week that I'm hoping to resolve tonight. But part of the debate is because we're not talking about the same thing. When I say that there's an individual will, or the traditional view says there's an individual will, here's the definition. It is that in almost every decision, God has an ideal will or plan for each individual believer which we must discover in order to be in the center of God's will. Do you see what you have to do? First, in almost every decision, so not just the big ones, in almost every decision, there's an ideal place for you to be, and you can discover it. That's what we mean by an individual will for you. Some of you have started to ask other questions, like what about calling? What about purpose? What about, does God just leave you alone? That's what we're talking about in a little bit tonight. But just let's make sure we're talking about the same thing, Because last week some people started to throw out some scriptures about what about when it says this and what about when it says this. I don't disagree with those scriptures. I'm just saying let's make sure we understand what that is. So we critiqued that view over the last two weeks and said the other view was like this. The other view was that there is God's moral will, which is expressed in scripture and clear for us to understand. But that within that, there was a large area of freedom for us to choose. That there was no ideal plan in a lot of decisions. In fact, in most decisions, unless it's dealt with directly in God's moral will, we have freedom to decide. And responsibility. And I think some of us are not focusing yet on the responsibility. We're going to talk about that a little bit tonight. And where we ended last week, just to bring us all up to speed, was we started to realize that we have these questions. If we accept a view, the alternative view... That God really doesn't have a detailed plan for every single decision you make. Some of us are still aching inside. But doesn't he have a plan for me? Doesn't he know the number of hairs on my head? Doesn't he have a unique purpose, giftings? Doesn't he need me? Doesn't he care seem to be like something that we're wrestling with? If he doesn't have an ideal plan for every single moment, does that mean he's left me alone? And the answer is no. Doesn't God have a plan for me? Yeah. Do we have a unique purpose? Sure. But look how it's played out. Going back to our idea of moral will and freedom, we reminded that the first week we started, we were talking about God's sovereign will. And it was really God's sovereign will that begins to invade everything else that is really what creates the plan. Let me say it in English, because graphically it makes a little bit of sense, but let me say it in English. God's sovereign will controls And we have our free will, and we talked about that tension. God's moral will is within that, saying that this is what's revealed to us in Scripture. And when we were saying, but if I just have my freedom, 
Doesn't that conflict with God's sovereign will? How can I just have freedom to make any choice I want? Does that mean he doesn't care about that area? And the answer is no, he cares very much. He's in control of so much. He's going to perfect his sovereign will in your individual life. But that doesn't mean that he's going to reveal individual will to you each time. That's where we left off. That was the discomfort we left last week. And I saw some hands and some discussion afterwards that said, okay, I'm starting to understand this. The alternative view is saying that there might be a perfect plan, there might be a perfect will, but I'm not going to know it in advance. Remember, our definition of individual will is one that we can discover. I might not be able to discover it because we know that we don't know God's sovereign will. He's just working it out. Does this make sense? Because this is really the point we've been driving to for almost four or five weeks, that We can have all the freedom we want within God's moral will, but he's still at work. But that's different than saying, we're going to sit before every decision and go, do you want me to go left or right? Should I go to this college or this college? Do I marry this person or this person? Do I go to this country or that country? Because God's going to say, first of all, it may work out exactly the way I want it to, but I'm not telling you in advance. That's part of my sovereign will at work. All you need to know is you have freedom and responsibility. Remember the responsibility. We'll come back to it in a second. Okay, so where does that leave us in how to make a decision under this alternative view? First, where God's command is clear, where his moral will is clear, we must obey. We don't have a choice. Remember, God's moral will includes direct commandments about specific things. It also includes the attitudes, the method, the manner of which we're supposed to do things. Second, if there is no command, God gives us freedom and responsibility to choose. Number three also gives us wisdom to choose. So it's not like God has no guidance. He's just leaving us alone with absolute freedom. He's telling us wisdom. Where do we get that wisdom? Well, we looked at some of those places, like from the word itself, from the counsel of others, even from the Holy Spirit who's still active. We're not saying that God has left the scene at all. In fact, the fourth one says occasionally, occasionally, he'll have divine guidance. Special revelation directly to us. We looked at this. How do the apostles make decisions? This is very important. In the book of Acts, we know that the Holy Spirit was probably the most active in the initiation of the early church. So how did the apostles make decisions? Were they constantly seeking the individual will of God? Do you find Paul sitting down saying, what's your will, Lord, for this particular thing? In fact, in in the epistles and in the book of Acts, we don't find that model anywhere. We find these kinds of words. Them deciding on their own using wisdom, like, it's good, it's better, we thought it best, it's fitting, we thought it necessary... It's not desirable. We looked at this example last week just to bring us up to speed on marriage, for example. And I've excerpted, I've cut it down from what we looked at. But just to give you an idea, like when he was preaching about marriage, we knew that we had freedom. Look at the freedom words that he gives. You know, if you do this, you've not sinned. If you do this, they've not sinned. This person does the right thing and this person does the right thing. He's saying you have your freedom to choose. In fact, in the last part there, when he's talking about a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes. The reason I brought up the point on marriage is because most of us, if we believe that God had a place to intervene in our lives, would care most about this area probably. We think inside that if he cared about anything, probably he'd care first about maybe what we did for a living or what we did for a ministry and second, what we cared about marriage. And here's Paul saying, you're free. You're free to do what you want to do. With wisdom, because he's giving wisdom, but you're free. What does that mean, that God doesn't have one person for us? Uh, that's what this appears to say, sure, that you're free. 
I mean, he does give some guidelines on his moral will, like don't marry an unbeliever. He does not like divorce. Like he says those things very clearly. So you're within those bounds. But if you're waiting for him to say, all right, I'm going to drop her out of the sky, like right here, probably not going to happen. So you don't think Lena was the one that God actually particularly pointed out? Let's talk about that one afterwards, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, looking from a marriage perspective or even, even Dave, you know, like, is that just a choice that you made or you think that's something that the Lord really brought you guys together? Yes. <laughs> Love really is a choice. And if we have um, freedom to choose, and I was young. Yeah. Uh, younger than most of you here <laughs> when that occurred. So it's it's like God put me in that place. You know, it was, that's the way I look at it. Yeah, I think that God put you in that place is very real. Like the way in which Lena and I met, a lot of people would say, like, you could either say it was lucky, fortuitous, miraculous. You could use any word you want, right? I mean... There was no way that I would meet that person across the world where both of us are, like, not where we're supposed to be. We just meet in the middle of the mission field, right? You know, you could say God orchestrated it in such a way that we met, right? But let's talk about individual for a moment. Was I sitting before the Lord saying, Lord, should I go on this trip? Will I find my wife? Well, I wasn't asking any of those things. I was just following God's moral will, which is, you'll see later when we talk about missions, go on a mission trip. Like, that's, that's something that I need to do for the Lord. He orchestrated an amazing meeting. But I got to tell you that even after we met and everything was doing well, we could have both walked away. And I don't think our life would have been totally wrecked. I would have missed out on something great. And I don't think either one of us felt like if we said, you know what, we both decided, let's say, let's say not to marry somebody else, but just not to get married, that for the rest of our lives, we're going to be miserable and missing out on what God had for us. You know, and that's the important thing when you ask about, is there only one person? I, I think that that's commonly felt like God has the perfect person for you. And if he does, by the way, which I'm not saying he can't, because I know people who I think he does have a perfect person for them. It's just that you're not going to know because you can't know God's sovereign plan and the way he's orchestrated. All you can do is hope that if he's got one person and one person only, and he wants you to get married to that person, no matter what you do, you're not going to be able to escape that. But you're not going to be able to sit before him in advance and say, and ask those things because that would be his sovereign will at work, not some sort of individual plan that he's going to reveal to you early. All right, the point I'm trying to make is when Paul was pressed on the subject as important as marriage, nowhere in his dialogues even to say, seek the Lord's will and see what the Lord's will is for this. He's like, do what you feel is right within certain wisdom and guidance. And he gives that. Here's where we ended up in a, in a kind of a, an ending moment last time, a little, little bit of a cliffhanger. There was Randy in the back saying, wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm reading verses in the same books you're talking about, in Corinthians In Romans, I'm reading verses that talk about the call. The call. What is that? What is the call? When we're called, he who he called, they who were called. What is that about? And this is the part where I just want to say, let's let's take a moment just to expand our mind for a second. Because this is going to be a little bit different. I was sitting in a sermon this morning where they were talking about like when I was called into ministry. We use that term a lot in the church. So what I'm about to say is going to sound like I'm going against everything you've ever heard in the church. And that may be. All right. And if the floor opens up and I'm gone, you'll know that was the wrong thing to bring up tonight. If we somehow get through to the other side, the only purpose I'm trying here is to ask you this question. Is it possible that our language about the call to ministry, the call to missions, the call to a vocation is something that we've adopted in English that may not necessarily track with the biblical language. Here's why. Look at this thing right here. 
the word call is used about 148 times in the New Testament. And we need to understand how it's used. Here's the way it's used. First, the way Jesus used the word was to summon or call people to his ministry. Basically like, follow me or receive the kingdom. He was inviting people, in other words. That was the sense of call that he was making, inviting. But the person who uses the word call the most in the New Testament is Paul. And these are the verses that I think have tripped us up collectively as a church, not just in this room, I mean just as a church. Because when you read the words, they sound like what he's saying is you should discover your calling or there is something that you have been called to. But what he's really talking about is the call to salvation. That God's grace is working in you and that you've been called to that. Look at Romans 8.28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That's one of the verses, by the way, when you say that God's going to bring all things to good and I've been called somehow. Does that sound like it's saying that? Is that a fair reading of that? It's a fair reading if you take the verse all by itself. Here's the full verse. Look at this. And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these who he justified, he also glorified. When Paul uses the word called, in almost every instance that I could find, and I tried to run search to find every one, I know I'm using an English Bible, I'm not searching it through the Greek. I'm just trying to find out where did we as a church adopt this language from? And in almost every instance, in fact, in every one I could find, the word called is referring to salvation when you put it into context. It's not referring to a calling to some sort of ministry or vocation or an office within the church, like a prophet or something like that. That kind of surprised me. It kind of really disturbed me a little bit. Like, where do we get this language then? And I don't know where the answer is. I'm going to leave it there for you. Where do we get the language? Because all of us, even if I said you can't find out the individual plan for every single decision, so just use wisdom... I would, I would guess, maybe just take a hand. How many people still think we have some sort of calling we're supposed to figure out? Like, what's our purpose in this life? Basically, it seems like the language doesn't support it. In fact, I want to focus on the supernatural calling for just a second. Because we say, like, if Jesus was using it as an invitation, if Paul's most frequent use of it was some sort of reference to salvation, to those whom God has called to grace and salvation, then what's this third one about right here? Well, it turns out that if you take this one by itself, there's only really about three instances where there is, in the book of Acts, a supernatural calling to an office. And these are them right here. God's call to Paul on the road to Damascus, calling him to become the apostle. God's call to Barnabas and Saul to be the first missionaries. Again, a supernatural calling to them to become missionaries. And then God's call to Paul and company to go to Macedonia. That's about it. Those are the ones. And again, what surprised me is, I would think if you go through the book of Acts, you should find a million places where all sorts of people are being called into offices, but it doesn't seem like it's operating that way, right? I feel like these instances, God's picking people out that he wants to be, 
picked out and they're not necessarily people that really wanted to follow him. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. They weren't seeking it out. Yeah. Um, what about when God told Abraham, you know, leave the land of Ur, however far, when he told Philip, he told Philip to go on this road, this certain road, and he's walking and then he meets um, a eunuch. Anyways, God had like very specifically told him, go here. Yeah, and I think there are more instances, by the way, through the Old Testament and in the New, where, like, for example, the way that he spoke to Moses, that was a call. Like, he told him, like, I want you to go and become my spokesperson and free the people, right? The way he spoke through Joshua and said, I want you to march around this city so many times that it's going to fall to you, right? So there are those instances where people are called into becoming those things. In fact, I don't want to limit it and say there's only three places in the whole Bible. But what I'm saying is in every instance where there's that call, People were not exactly seeking out and sitting there saying, wait, what is it that you want me to do? He showed up and said, this is what I want you to do. In fact, in most cases, you see people resisting the call. Most people are not looking for the call, like Gideon or like the judges, all of them. They're, like, they're not looking for this type of, of job. In fact, they're trying to deny it. Some of them are saying, like, don't send me. Some of them say, all right, I, yeah, I'm the one for you. Like Isaiah, he has a vision. It's supernatural. The Lord intervenes and reveals himself, and then Isaiah goes, I'll go. But other prophets are like, I, not, not me, send somebody else. I don't want to be the person. Like, I don't want to be the one. So you get different responses. Do you want to come back? I totally understand where you're getting to from. You see consistently throughout the scripture that the people that God called to specific vocations or to a specific um, you know, road to walk on, they're just seeking the Lord. And then the Lord tells them where to go. And a lot of times they're like, oh my gosh, why are you sending me there? But it's not, they're not like, should I go on that road or should I not? They didn't ever think about the road before. But they were seeking the Lord. And, and a lot of times our problem is we're like trying to figure out what's good for our life. And we're really focused on ourselves and not Christ. You should come up here because you're saying it better than I am. That's exactly right. That's, that's what I'm trying to drive to. Is that, is that having debunked like all this idea probably for the last two weeks that there is this individualized plan that you've got to stop and wait at the stoplight till he tells you which way to go. When it comes to calling, which is the next natural question... Yeah, there still may be supernatural callings in every situation, but they're so infrequent in most people's lives, all right? And then we could debate the frequency. I guess the easiest way to say it is if you look at the book of Acts, it should be the most frequent of any time because that's when the church is birthed right there. And everybody, regardless of where you are on the spectrum of belief about the Holy Spirit's power, everybody agrees that it was probably the strongest during the apostolic age. Let me show you what I think it means, because some of you are already hitting on it. This is what I think these things kind of lead us to. I mean, these supernatural calls, and I'm not saying there aren't any. There are. I know people have had them. But they're not as frequent as we would think. So I've put up here, they're the exception, not the norm. Even if every single one of us were to have one in their life, or two, or three, that would still not be the norm in every decision-making we do. And by the way, a lot of us may go our entire life and not feel a supernatural call of any kind. I know lots of people who serve willingly for the Lord who've never had a supernatural call, who've never had somebody show up on the road to Damascus and say, this is what you're going to do. They've just decided in wisdom to say, Lord, your moral will says I should serve you and love these people and feed and clothe and all these things, and I'm going to do that. And there's been no supernatural sign going, yes, in you I am well pleased. But like, it just, you just keep doing that. Maybe it shows up. Because we abide in Christ and it shows up in the fruit that we bear. But it's still not the same thing as having that supernatural revelation. 
Look, these calls all involve some sort of supernatural revelation. They were clear communications, not inner impressions. You know, we talk about the the traditional view says that you just wait upon the Lord and you feel the way that he's directing you and you may have peace and you may not have peace and those kind of things. This view just says the Lord's going to clearly communicate. If he's going to reveal himself supernaturally, you're not going to guess whether that was the Lord or not. You're going to know. And in every instance, it seems like the person was not looking for the call, kind of like what Ryan was alluding to. They were just kind of dragged into it. Is that bothering you? You guys okay? Yeah. Well, callings can even be just through who you are and how you're built. Because, like, I, you know, God's gifted me with being musically inclined, and I kind of felt that was a calling to serve musically in my church back home. You know, I did hear God say, you will serve on the worship team, which is like, this is what God's given me, so this is what I'm going to use. Can I, I'm going to come back to your comment because we're going to talk in a moment about the talents, which directly relates to what you just said. Do you remember my, my plea at the end of last week was this? And maybe I'll just remind you so that we can explain why we'd even go into tonight. Like some of us at this point are like, you've taken God's will away from me. You know, like, <laughs> I just, like, I have nothing to ask him about anymore. Why even pray? You know, which is why we're going to do our last talk on what's left to pray about. As a, you know, like, <laughs> at the very end. But here was my passion last week. There are so many Christians that are standing on the sidelines waiting to be called, waiting to be told in advance what God wants them to do to make a certain decision. There's people who honestly want to serve on the mission field, but they don't know if God's called them to Thailand or Cambodia, and they're trying to figure it out. And they're waiting for signs. They're throwing out fleeces. They're trying to raise money. If all comes in, that'll be the Lord's will. And that breaks my heart because the heart of the Lord is for us to just go. And I really think there's something to this view that maybe he's not so concerned with where. And by the way, if he is concerned, he's going to work it out through his sovereign will anyway. You can't thwart the sovereign will of God. So if you go, it's going to work out because he's going to work it out. We don't need to just wait. I think so much time is wasted while we're trying to figure it out or waiting for these clear signs, even the supernatural signs. If I knew for sure that you, each of you, was going to have a supernatural sign in your life within the next three years that was going to tell you what you needed to do the rest of your life, I would still be bummed if you waited all three years before you did something. Because there's so much other things we could be doing for the kingdom in the meantime. And if your purpose in life was to go overseas and serve in some mission organization. Every one of us, and I just knew that, within the next three years, everybody's going to get called like a draft. It's going to happen, okay? I would still say, how about we do something in the meantime? Like reach out to the local people. Look, how do I know if I should take up vocational ministry? How do I know if my place is to minister in the outside, in the walls outside the church? How do I know if I should pursue ministry at all? Here's my answer. It may, may, I like may, be totally up to you. I mean, within God's moral will, and definitely governed by his sovereign will, because he's not going to let you get out of that, he's going to work it out the way he wants it. And the reason I say it may be up to you is because he may divinely call you to something. I may be totally wrong about the frequency of divine call. And at the bottom of the screen there, I put the parable of the talents. This goes with what Jonathan was talking about, about being musically gifted. And let me just say this about the parable of talents. This view, we've been calling it the alternative view, the alternative to the traditional view. But you know what? 
it seems to me like it's in line with Jesus's view. In the story of the parable of the talents, the master who represents Christ gives each of the servants an amount of talent, an amount of money, each according to their ability, each according to what the master believes they can handle, and then he goes away. In the parable of the talents, I don't see the master saying, this is how you will invest it. This is what you will do with it. He gives it to them and he goes away. Like a talent for music. Or I think the cop-out is just, just look at it as talents like gifts. Like the money we have in our pockets in this country. Like the wealth that we have. Like the opportunity we have. Like all of that. The Lord has given to each of us. And then he comes back. And when he comes back, he says, what would you do with it? Each of the servants has a different answer. One doubled it from five to ten, one from whatever it was, from can't remember. One of them didn't do anything. But the point is that he gave them the freedom to do those things. That seems consistent with the way that God has given us all talents and abilities and opportunities and wealth and his moral will. Here's what I want you to do. His moral will is so abundant. You guys saw that in the exercise we did where we just went through a few chapters and filled the screen with just all the things that God commands in just a few chapters. His moral will is abundant and he's given us the chance and he's going to come back and say, so how did you do? Yeah. Right. And that brings us to Responsibility. It is not absolute freedom. First of all, it's bound by God's moral will and definitely bound by his sovereign will, which we could never escape. But notice in the parable of the talents that when the master came back, he asked them what they had done. And the one who said, well, I didn't lose it, but I didn't do anything with it. I just buried it in the ground. The master was very upset. In fact, upset would be an understatement in that parable. He said, throw him out where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, which in parable land you guys know is like the equivalent of hell. Not a good place. Harsh punishment. But that's the responsibility. To those who have been given, like much is going to be expected. That's the responsibility. So yes, you can have your freedom to choose. But we can't choose in the absence of wisdom. And we can't choose in the absence of responsibility. Jesus still is going to come back and make account with us to find out how we did with what he gave us. Yeah. This may be a little bit of a tangent, but do you think we can lose our salvation if we don't utilize our gifts? No, I don't believe that. I believe that there are verses in the Bible that imply that what we do in this life will affect the, the next life in terms of our rewards, which is a controversial topic. A lot of people, like, they find that out for the first time, like, there's rewards in heaven? So, yeah, that's what I, that's what I believe the scripture clearly teaches. And I can point you to the verse, I was actually going through it earlier, where, where it's being taught that, that's, that you'll still have salvation, but you might get in there like with your hands in your pocket as opposed to somebody who really pursues it with all they've got. They may have some sort of reward waiting for them in heaven in addition to their salvation. But I don't believe it could ever disqualify you from it if you've met the other requirements. Any other questions on that? Let's look at the same thing in missions. How do I know... If I'm called to missions, I mean, it's like we always talk about that. Like some people talk about, I'm, am I called to missions? Am I called? Easy answer to this one. We're all called to missions. This is in God's moral will. We don't have to wonder. We don't even have to look at the skies and say like, how about the Great Commission? 
Jesus says it right from the beginning. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the ends of the age. It's an easy one for me. Am I called to missions? Yes, every one of us. Are those missions going to look different? Sure. Are they going to be local and global, short-term and long-term? Yeah, they'll differ. Yeah, I guess, I mean, you hit on just essentially local and global. I think there's a big issue in Christianity with what we define as missions, especially in where we live now. Like, folks, if we haven't figured it out, we're not in a Christian nation anymore. <laughs> Your next-door neighbor might be a mission. One, I think we should get out into the world um, as, as the Great Commission. I, I just think we need to check where we are with missions and what, you know, what we define as mission because, I mean, we're, we're next to neighbors who don't know and, and how many of them do we even know and, and how, how, how urgent do we take that call to, to love the people right next to us. Yeah. I think that if you dedicated your life to, to working with, with uh, disadvantaged people and you never went on a mission trip, but you are wholeheartedly working on that your entire life. I think God would see that as your mission. I think the problem that we have with missions is that we do have this local-global dichotomy. We have this short-term, long-term thing. We spent an entire series one night just talking about the problems with missions and the Christian view of missions. And that's one of the things you can download to go back to this talk. But the summary of that one conversation was when we say we're being a local missionary, like we're not going to go, the problem is we end up doing nothing. If you were a local missionary and you really reached out to your neighbors, then I think you're on the mission field. But most of us, when we really get down to it, are not missionaries at work and are not missionaries to our neighbors. Uh, We keep intending to be, but we never really are. So that's why I think Jesus, in his wisdom, told us to go. Because doors open when we go. We rely on God more when we go. And even Jesus himself knew and said that a prophet is never accepted in his own hometown. I think from personal experience, he knew that you'll have a better reception when you go and you'll be on the field and totally relying on God and doing things when you go. So the answer is, I think there really is a go component to everybody, but you could go to your neighbor. I just think most of us don't, you know, or we, I mean, we talked about this, forget it. We could leave from here and go to Anaheim and that would be enough going probably because we're out of our element in some way, you know, or San Francisco or even going to a different country, you know, and that to me, would be far enough away from home that I'm like out there going, God, I don't know what's going on. You know, that would be enough. I think there's wisdom in the go part that we just seem to kind of skip around. So while I agree that we need to be doing it on a local basis, the fact is we don't. And that's why I think artificially making us go was probably part of Jesus' design. That, of course, that it would go to hear, for everybody to hear it. So if we're all called to missions, we're going to ask the same question we always do again at the end. Like, well, then how do I know where I'm supposed to go? I think you guys know the answer by now, wherever you want, within wisdom and responsibility. Like if you're doing a mission trip to Hawaii, that'd be kind of nice, but hopefully you're doing some work there, right? So that the Lord doesn't go, man, you raised all this money and went to Hawaii. And that was like, like, but we were part of surfers for Jesus. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But if there's real mission work going on, that's great. Again, absent a supernatural call, we have freedom in wisdom and responsibility to choose governed by God's sovereign will. I cite Acts 15, 19 to 41. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to tell you what's going on in Acts. One of the supernatural calls that are evident in the book of Acts is 
God calling the first missionaries, including Paul, to go out on the first missionary journey. That first mission trip was supernaturally ordained and commanded. And they obeyed and they went. But an interesting thing happens in Acts 15. Paul, on his own, concludes that he should do a second missionary trip to visit the people. Now, I'm not saying that he wasn't guided in some way, but the text does not say that. The text says that Paul reasoned with the other believers in Jerusalem and says, I think we should go back and visit our brethren at the different churches. Again, even if God's going to Paul the first mission trip, that doesn't mean that it's going to happen every time, even in Paul's lifetime. We know he had these two massive missionary trips. The first one, supernaturally called. Second one, he thinks it's a good thing for us to do, and they do it. I think that there's a supernatural call just found within the Bible. It's just less specific. Like, I think he specifically calls people to certain places. And, yeah, we shouldn't just be waiting around, you know, if we don't feel that. But I think that there is a, you know, a supernatural call that's just much more broad for anybody who calls themselves. That's where his heart is. And so I think, you know, if we're not doing something involved in that, involved in sacrifice in some way, then we are missing the supernatural call. But it's just not necessarily specific. So yes, we have the freedom um, to choose, you know, different things to do, but I think we should be involved in that. Is that supernatural call, do you think, different than what he codifies in his moral will for us? Or is it something that comes after that? Or is he indicating that there's going to be more? It seems more like we look at these principles that we should live our life by, but it's more like guidelines that it's easy to, you know, follow you know, I don't do this, I do this, I don't do this. But it's kind of different than, like, the calling to maybe help other people. Like, it's more personal, what should I do in my life, how should I live my life, rather than, you know, how does that involve, you know, my surrounding. Yeah. I think God's moral will, by the way, encompasses the priorities that Jesus has. Like, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, and that's the part that we took to take just those few chapters when we looked at how abundant moral will is. I mean, he would say, like, you could just take it right out of there. You could see his priorities, like when you give, not if you give, when you give, do it this way. When you pray, not if, when, do it this way. It's clear in our hands that we can see that God's moral will is telling us what his priorities are. So I think that's why I think there's some agreement there, but I want to hear if you think that's a little different. Actually, now that I think about it, I think that's exactly right. I think it's in the moral will, we just miss it a lot. Yeah, and we said all the way back when we talked about God's moral will, it's so abundant, and yet we don't think it's good enough for us. Maybe that's a crass way of saying it, but for those who have always been waiting for God to reveal his individual will, it's like, all of this, yeah, I know that's there, but I want you to tell me what you want me to do. And we miss that that's exactly what that is. I want all of you to be doing these things. And we still tend to think, yeah, but what college do you want me to go to? It's like, I think that if you ask Jesus, what's more important to you, the college I go to, or that people are dying that you want to save in this world, and you have told me that it's my responsibility to feed those who don't have food, I think this one's going to be its priority over and above everything else. Okay, I promised that tonight was going to be like the end of the disturbing stuff. So let me just summarize and bring it together and then close it off a little bit. What I'm not saying is just as important as what I am saying. I'm not saying that God doesn't care. In fact, he cares very much. 
I'm not saying that God is not in control. He's absolutely in control. I'm not saying that he's distant. He has no plan for us in any way. He works it out in ways we could never understand. In fact, we wrestle with how he can control and work out our lives and have these plans and yet still give us freedom. I'm not saying that he doesn't have a greater purpose for us or a calling. Really what it comes down to, maybe the only thing we are saying is that we may not know it in advance. We may not be able to ask him and to figure out what it is. When it comes to calling, that the calling may be up to us to choose in wisdom and responsibility how we want to take the talents, the resources, the blessings, the life that he's given us and use it for his priorities and purposes. Knowing that he's going to hold us to a standard someday. Knowing that he's going to ask us how we did with what he gave us, just like in the parable of the talents. That may be what all of this freedom is about. And the most important part for all of us is that we not wait upon it. Because his moral will is, in my opinion, sufficient for us to get started. And I pray that God would show up in a concrete, tangible, supernatural way in every single believer's life and tell us exactly what we need to be doing with our lives. I'm not against that. I would welcome that. I want that. But what I don't want is until that happens, for us to be waiting, figuring out what we're supposed to be doing. Because we already should know. Like I said, start with something as simple as one of the Gospels and start writing down all the things that he tells us to have priorities over. Just to see how abundant his moral will. If you get through two or three chapters and you don't have a page, go back and reread it. Because there's so much there for us to be doing. That's the point. That's my heart. That's why I've been beating this point for the last two or three weeks. Not to take away something, but to actually make God bigger in this way than just somebody who gives you fortune cookie instructions on where to go next. He's given us something much more important than that, which is our freedom. And then sat back and said, no matter how you choose, it's still going to work out exactly the way I want it to. That's how amazing I am. And that's the part that still boggles my mind. Okay. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to add um, something that I've been learning in my life is that a lot of times we'll have this big dilemma about the will of God, but really we're not really wanting to know what His will is. A lot of times if we just go on these mission trips, you know, and we're like, okay, well, I'm doing what I think I'm supposed to be doing, and we're not really in love with Christ and not really able then to share the love of Christ with other people, What I resonate with what you said is like the first time that I decided to follow God's will into the mission field for me, I resisted that call for years. And I convinced myself over and over that I was in the world, I was making money, I was supporting missionaries, and that was my calling, my job, my thing. And I ignored something as clear as the Great Commission, which applies to all people. And it kept gnawing at me and gnawing at me and gnawing at me. And, I, and, and God didn't show up one day and say, you must go. I knew that I had to go. Because the Spirit still works in us and convicts us to just read the moral will of God and to look at it and to look at it straight and go, hey, there's something here. The minute I actually stepped out onto the mission field, and Dave was on that first trip with me, uh, it changed everything. 
And I didn't want it to change that much. I didn't want my life to be turned upside down and to eventually leave my job and go in to do other stuff in ministry and all these things. That was way too far for me. But if I really was going to seek the Lord's will, then it was going to happen. Like It was like one of those, like, it was like water. You don't just step in a little bit. Like You're just going to go all the way in if you do it. So I agree that a lot of us are scared to do those things. But looking back now, I can't imagine my life any other way. But I certainly didn't want to do it until I actually stepped out. And did God show up? No, it was following his moral will that led me into a place. Now, I believe God's sovereign will is still active in my life. And he's orchestrating all the things that are happening around in all of our lives collectively. But I had to still step out and do it. It wasn't enough just to wait and see. You know, a lot of us are like waiting for some sort of like feeling. And then you're like, yeah, is it heartburn? Is it like, what is that exactly that I'm feeling? A lot of people talk, we we said this in previous weeks, like a lot of people are looking like, when I make the right decision, I'll have peace. When I made the decisions that I've made in my life to follow the Lord, like I didn't, I was nervous. I was scared out of my mind. That's why I'm saying like that gnawing, that thing, that conviction of the spirit is sometimes when you're reading the word and it's right there in front of you and you go, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. That's probably a stronger conviction and a feeling that you need. And yet most of us, uh, myself included, We'll find a reason to just kind of move on and go, well, but when you call me, I'll actually do that. It's like it's right there. Do it. Let's pray. Lord, I lay before you the things that we discussed tonight. And I confess openly that, that these topics bring confusion sometimes more than they bring clarity. Because that's the moment that I know that we're approaching a God who is so much bigger than us that we can't even put you into words. And as soon as we say one thing, we think of something else that kind of maybe rubs against that. And we're struggling to get a concrete answer to something. And it may not exist, Lord, because we're finite creatures that you created. Don't ever let us be in that position, Lord, where as your creation, we think that we have figured out the creator. That the finite can ever understand or quantify the infinite. So, Lord, tonight, some of us are feeling kind of heavy after something like this, just feeling like, I'm not sure I've grasped everything about it, and that's okay. Our point, Lord, tonight, our sacrifice, our desire was just to lay before your feet just the chance to consider these things, to open up our minds, and, Lord, most importantly, not to delay doing things. If it please you, Lord, to show up in every person's life in here and to supernaturally give us direction, then thank you, Lord. I pray for that right now. But if that's not going to happen or until it does happen, Lord, get us off of our butts. Get us into the word. Show us your moral will. Enlighten us, Holy Spirit. Convict us about the things that we need to be doing that we're not doing. And then give us the strength to do them. Lord, let every person in this room build some sort of accountability around them with each other and with people in our lives to encourage us to do the things that are your priorities. We have still not fulfilled the Great Commission. We have still not even fulfilled your great commandment to love others and to love you fully. Lord, let's start there and see how well we can do. We pray these things in your name. Amen.